Welcome again to the Nothing But Grace podcast. As you can tell that over the course of time, my voice has improved remarkably. So I thank you for your patience as I've nursed it along for what seems like about two months now. And uh, it's starting to feel good again. So thank you for listening and tuning in so faithfully. This is, of course, the worship uh, message uh, broadcast through the podcast uh, arena every week uh, from First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. I am Dr. Chuck McGathy, and uh, if you've not met me in person, I'd love to meet you. One of the best ways to connect with our church is to look us up on a website, which is www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.weebly.com. And uh, if you'll do that, you'll find out a little bit more about us. If you want to give a little bit of money, we will always accept it. If you just want to find out more about who we are, do that. Whatever you do, we want you to know that you are family. We do not find that we have strangers who come into our church or come and join with us by radio or by Facebook or in person. No, we are all friends. We're all children of God, and we welcome you in that way. We are in the midst of our Advent season, and this worship today is for the third Sunday of Advent, but I like to use the name Gaudete. Gaudete was a a Latin term that means rejoice. And so this particular Sunday, the Advent candle which has been blue, changes to pink to recognize Gaudete Sunday when we repent and know that through our repentance, grace is to be found. So I welcome you as we join together. I want you to know that our scripture reading today comes from the gospel according to Luke. It's the third chapter, verses 7 through 18. Let me read that to you in the New Living Translation before I go into sharing some thoughts with you about the meaning of that and how that applies on this Gaudete Sunday. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, We're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked, What should we do? John replied, If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, Teacher, what should we do? He replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? asked some soldiers. John replied, Don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. 
John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater than I am not even worthy to be a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the shaft from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the shaft with never-ending fire. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. Book banning, or even book burning, has been a reoccurring theme in human history. The arguments for destroying literature usually involve fear of the ideas expressed or an offense drawn from the work of the author. The Bible, if we will really dare to read it, often leaves us a bit uncomfortable. It was not designed to be a G-rated book suitable for any and all sensitivities. It is not written to conform to an ancient version of political correctness. No, there is language found in this book that understood properly would shock us. And one of the examples of strong language is found in an expression used by both Jesus and by John the Baptist. What do they mean when they refer to people as a brood of vipers? The human attitude towards snakes, particularly venomous snakes, dates back centuries. They were seen as evil and dangerous. Then, as now, calling someone a snake was clearly an insult. Therefore, this is an interesting thing that John begins his sermon by calling his congregation a bunch of snakes. It is recorded for us in Luke, the third chapter. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the weed into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. What an odd piece of scripture this is, chosen specifically for this Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent. This is the Sunday called Gaudete Sunday, which literally translated from the Latin is the Sunday on which we rejoice. 
So on Rejoicing Sunday, why do we let John the Baptizer, as our preacher from the Holy Book, refer to us as a bunch of snakes? That doesn't seem to fit the mood of this day. After all, isn't this supposed to be a day of good news? Well, let's look again. This time, consider only the first and last sentences of the passage. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And then, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. It is in how John offers snakes good news that inspires rejoicing. That brings gaudite, that brings rejoicing. To the best of my recollection, I cannot remember many preachers I've heard, including some of the most fire-breathing fundamentalists I've known, that begin a sermon by calling their listeners snakes. Oh, it is true they might get there before they're done preaching, but they rarely start there. Yet that is precisely how John the Baptizer started his sermon. What is it about snakes and snakiness that is so awful? One could argue that snakes are, after all, part of God's creation, and as such, they serve a purpose in this world. My Florida home is a place where waters teem with alligators and sharks, and your wilderness, which is a lot closer to people than you may think, is abundant with wild boar, bald eagles, and snakes. Lots of snakes. There are six species of venomous snakes in Florida, all dis a distinction unmatched in any other state, and I've encountered all of these poisonous varieties except one. I recall each of these encounters, and one I remember so well it still sends chills down my spine. For fun after school, I used to meet with my friends, and together we would ride our bikes to the edge of our suburban community where we would enter a swamp. The swamp bordered on the edges of a lake called Wampy, an Indian name, the meaning of which has long been forgotten. For the most part, Lake Wampy was undeveloped, and so most of its shoreline remained in a natural state, a condition we preferred for what we were about to do. Brandishing machetes in a spirit of adventure, we set out to explore the swamp, to go to the untraveled places, to see and experience nature at its pristine best. On one such trip through the tangled undergrowth that we we came upon a site that would become known among us as Snake Tree. Snake Tree was a small tree that hung over the water. We were upon it before we knew it. Suddenly a hand grabbed my shoulder. Stop, Charlie! I looked to see my ashen-faced friend. What? I wanted to know. Look! was all he said. I then saw the reason for his concern. Lying upon the branches of the tree just in front of me was not one, but perhaps a half a dozen snakes, a brood of vipers. These were cottonmouth moccasins, a dangerous and aggressive species of viper, and upon one of those branches was the largest cottonmouth I have ever seen. He was so large that his girth matched the diameter of my twelve-year-old thigh. Ever so slowly, ever so gently and deliberately, we backed away from this brood of vipers. That night, I'm sure I dreamt of what might have happened had I ventured another step forward. Would I have felt the snakes before I saw them, their poison coursing through my veins before I could even identify my attackers? I had only been one step away from having a very bad day. 
Some people find snakes endlessly fascinating and extraordinarily beautiful creatures. The rest of us would like our encounters to be behind the protective glass of a zoo. That most likely was the spirit of those John was addressing. They feared and hated snakes. John was speaking to people who were terrified of the slithering silent killers, folks who could not imagine anything more terrifying than encountering a snake unless it is encountering a brood of snakes. John compares them to a bunch of snakes fleeing from the wrath to come, wrath that in this case will surely destroy them. In the low country, where people live on sea level, we know too well this scene. Bad weather, perhaps a hurricane, brings enormous amounts of rain, and with the rain, the rivers and bays swell and overflow. When that happens, it's not long until snakes start showing up in the yards and even in the homes of people. That is what John calls us, snakes. Snakes that are coiled and slithering in a tangled ball, a brood of vipers crawling out from hiding to escape drowning. Snakes fleeing to save their lives, desiring to avoid the wrath to come. What is the wrath to come to which John is referring? It is not that hard, nor is it all that obscure. I think it is our innate sense of knowing that there is coming a day of reckoning when those things we have done or left undone will return to haunt us. In Southern California, floods are not a problem. The biggest threat is fire. Even so, people build their homes on the slopes of the desert hills where the only natural vegetation is suited by natural selection for an arid environment. The chaparral has evolved to need very little water to survive. Consequently, the desert plant varieties are bone dry and loaded with oils that help sustain life in the driest of conditions. But there is a downside to this survival trait. All it takes is a stray spark to set these shrubs ablaze. Then they burn hot and they burn fierce. Wildfire travels at incredible speed up and down the mountains, flattening everything in its path and leaving only a blackened moonscape in its wake. For the residents of the homes built upon those slopes, there is very little they can do to stop a fire once it has started, but there is something that can be done before the flames begin. The nature experts tell residents all the time, clear the chaparral from around your home by several hundred yards if possible. If that is done, then you greatly decrease the chance that your home will be devoured by a fire seeking the easiest course with the most plentiful fuel. But guess what? That advice is often ignored. You see, chaparral is beautiful. Chaparral is hard to clear, and there is always the feeling that says, I can get this project done tomorrow. Do you see any parallels with other perils we face as human beings? Clearing the chaparral is like dealing with our sin. There is that gnawing sense that the bushes of sin growing at our doorsteps will only fuel the flames of our own funeral pyres, yet we are hesitant to remove them. We have become used to being to them being there. We even kind of like them. We know it will be hard work to get them out of our lives. We promise ourselves that we will be rid of them, but not just yet. No, but no matter if we leave them there, we can never rest easy for fear of the wrath to come. 
John the Baptist, of course, does not stop there. He gets even more personal with his audience. He next focuses on religious pride. Religious pride? How on earth did those words ever go together? We know instinctively that they do not belong together. Our religion is or ought to be about God coming to rescue us, not because we deserve it, but because of his grace. Pride indicates self-accomplishment and worth derived from personal performance or inherited traits. Now, the people to whom John preached were swelled with religious pride. They felt special because of their birth. They felt special because of their nation. They were the chosen, and because of that, they could just sense that they were better than everyone else. Now, I ask you honestly, does that sound like anyone we know today? Does it reflect how you feel sometimes? But through that very attitude, John cuts with a spiritual sword when he says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It really doesn't matter whether you are a Jew from Israel or you are a Christian from America. Religious pride is a contradiction of terms and as repugnant as rotting as a rotting, smelly corpse. It must be removed if the gospel is to be received. It cannot coexist with the good news Christ will bring. John's advice for religious pride? Cut it out. Remove it like the fire-prone chaparral before it turns into a consuming flame that will destroy you. He said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Another way of saying this is repent. Repentance means stop, turn, change direction while you still can. What should you repent from? In what way should you change? Well, that was the question of many of John's listeners, and they asked themselves the same thing. They asked him, what should we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with one who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. On the surface, tunic sharing, ethical tax collecting, and honest soldiering don't challenge our lifestyles very much. It is only when we think about the principles underlying those specific actions that we can fully appreciate the message John delivers. Those principles include doing what is kind, doing what is right more than what is legally required, and seeking justice for all people more than power and wealth for yourselves. We, too, must ask ourselves the hard questions. Am I kind? Am I righteous? Do I seek justice above my personal gain? Understood that way, there is room for everyone to repent, but, and this is the good part, it is repentance with an expectation. 
John tells us that there is a hope coming, a hope in which we may rejoice. It is a rejoicing that depends on God to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Through him, we can genuinely rejoice in our restoration and forgiveness. Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah, has been tremendously popular ever since Rufus Wainwright sang a version of it in the children's movie Shrek. But there is a verse which Wainwright did not sing. It goes like this. I did my best. It wasn't much. I couldn't feel, so I tried to touch. I've told the truth. I didn't come to fool you. And even though it all went wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. That, I think, is how we come to Christ. Willing and open, honest about, and truly sorry for our sin. Believing God loves us and will cleanse us. And rejoicing, Godete, in the good news of salvation. We come just as we are, believing that there is forgiveness to be found. Rejoice, Godete, rejoice. Let us pray. Just as I am. Without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Come, Lord Jesus, who receives sinners and welcomes us all. Amen.